Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my seats fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith. Good evening, Chris. How are you? Hey, Sue. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, fabulous. It's all exciting now because the world of science is going like a bit crazy, isn't it? And, and we've just been talking about UFOs with Nick Pope and it's, it's all exciting. The world of science never stops, does it? No. I was thinking about this the other day, that it doesn't matter where in the world you are, somewhere on Earth, it's daytime, and that means there's someone beetling away in a lab doing some exciting research. And the number of things that people are looking at, I've, I've got um, sent this thing, the Journal of Irreproducible Results. This comes out <laughs> of America. Uh, and they, they sort of poke fun at science a bit. So sci- it's scientists kind of let off steam in here. And there's this wonderful picture on the front of this guy who starts off with the most amazing head of hair. And, and the photo sequence goes... A lot of hair, less hair, a lot less hair, hardly any hair, totally bald. And if you open the journal up, it says inside, um, he's done this whole bit of research looking at, if you compare how many papers academically a scientist has published with how much hair they've got on their head, he shows this really strong correlation between the percentage of baldness and how successful you are as a scientist and, and says that one could conclude that this is because when you write papers you pull on your hair a lot and tug it all out. But what he's doing is poking fun at, at misuse and abuse of statistics, <laughs> which is that people who've published a lot of papers, of course, are older. And older people tend to lose their hair more than younger people. But it's very easy to draw the wrong conclusion and just say, ah, the reason that they've all lost their hair is because they've actually published a lot of papers. And so it's what he's saying is it's very important to make sure that you don't misread the message that's hidden in the numbers. Mm. All right, interesting stuff. We've got all the callers lined up already. Um, first of all, Chris, we've got Ian, who's on the line from Essex. Hello, Ian. Hello there, Sue. Hello, you're through to Dr Chris. Hello, Chris. Hey, Ian, how are you doing? Not too bad, mate. I uh, wonder if you could give me a little bit of advice. Well, it comes at a cost. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it's to do with traffic-free training, right? Right. I'm looking at an article here in a sports magazine, and uh, it says here that athletes who inhale high concentrations of particulate matter from the internal combustion engine, mm. their performance was reduced about seven days after exposure. Yes. Although not during the exposure. Yeah. Why might that be, Chris? It's interesting, this, because scientists have been interested in the association between pollution and health for a long time, going back to the 1950s, in fact. And you know what happened in the 1950s? It was the London smog, when yeah. London was enshrouded in this pea soup of a smog, which went on for days at a time. And the interesting thing was that the death rate in the population went up through the roof at the same time. And lots of those deaths weren't chest diseases, but heart attacks. And this suggested to scientists there may be some association between what we breathe in and how well our heart and blood vessels is working. They saw the same relationship in places in France as well. So this suggested that there really is something in this association. And so ever since, scientists have been looking at the relationship between what we breathe in, pollution made by factories and traffic, etc., and our health in general. 
And there was an interesting study that got published a few years ago where scientists took some rats and they took them on a road trip. So they put them on a lorry and they drove them out of New York and they drove them around for about five hours. And these rats were just breathing the same air as the driver in the lorry and other road users. They then brought them back to the laboratory and tested them to see how their blood pressure and heart rate was performing. And they found that they had all developed a degree of something called autonomic dysfunction. In other words, the part of the nervous system that controls your heart and blood vessels was working less well in these rats exposed to pollution than in rats that hadn't been exposed to pollution. And so this suggests that there are some chemicals in there, and we don't know exactly how they work, which in some way affect the functioning of your nervous system and particularly the nervous system that controls how well you get blood around your body. And if that is happening, that would explain why we see heart attacks on days when there's very bad air pollution because in some way it's making vessels more reactive and more prone to, say, vasoconstrict, clamp down when they shouldn't do. So scientists don't know exactly yet, but it's almost certainly something to do with the immune system as well because there was a study done in Singapore where they took uh, rats and made them breathe diesel fumes And then they looked in their lungs and they saw that there were increased numbers of a certain kind of cell called macrophages, which are inflammatory cells. And these macrophages make an inflammatory chemical called interleukin-6. And they found that these rats had increased responsiveness of their uh, nervous system under those circumstances. But in animals that couldn't make that interleukin-6, it didn't happen. So it suggests that, that it's all down to it winding up your immune system and this then produces chemicals that wind up your nervous system. Those macrophages, though, they eat all the, the muck in your lungs, don't they? Yes, the they're not little, though. Um, the word macro means big. Because oh, yeah, these are enough. huge, these cells. They're absolutely giant. And they are exactly what you say. They're the hoovers of your lungs. They rest in the bottom of your lungs and they wander around scooping up debris and they try and break it down chemically. But they're not programmed. They don't know chemically how to break down things like nanoparticles and other yeah. particles that you get from pollution out of engines because we haven't evolved to breathe de- debris nah. and dirt from engines. We've evolved to breathe in dust and pollen and muck from the environment naturally, but not yeah. things out of engines. So that's why yeah. these cells probably get frustrated because they can't break the stuff down and then they start getting wound up and pumping out extra so levels of inflammatory if, chemicals. If oil lasts for another couple of hundred thousand years, would they uh, be able to do it, do you reckon? Is that the way it works? Are you, are you saying would we evolve fast enough to compensate? Yeah, if, if oil was to last for a couple of hundred thousand years. I suppose it's get, possible. evolve? I think what's what's more likely is that you'll see people in the population that are more sensitive to pollution and people in the population that are less sensitive to pollution. The people who are less sensitive to pollution would be, by definition, fitter and therefore they're more likely to be breeding more and therefore they'll have more children so they'll have more children who are less sensitive to pollution so you might breed a population of humans that are less sensitive to the effects of pollution but I'd say hopefully it won't come to that and we'll learn to clean up our act before that becomes necessary. I wish we could... Chris, can I just ask you a quick, one quick one? Nanoparticles, the very small pieces, they actually do go through the lung lining and into the blood, don't they? Absolutely right. Yeah, right. And what's scientists the, uh, have done studies the, on the that. outcome of all of that? What does that actually do to you? Well, no one knows because oh, we've right. only just begun to realise that this happens. And scientists have now done studies where they've measured the pollution that comes out of cars just by taking air samples from the pavement. And if you look at those air samples, you can detect big particles. These are things called PM10s and PM2.5s. Those are 2.5 micron particles. But if you also look a bit more closely, you find a whole family of even smaller substances and structures in there. These are the nanoparticles. And they're so tiny, they're smaller than the cells that line your lungs. So when you breathe them in, we know that they get into the bloodstream and they then get distributed around the body. What end effect they might 
might have. We just don't know. But it's likely they contribute to some of the effects we've already discussed, which is making your body sensitive to pollution and perhaps have heart attacks and strokes on bad pollution days. Yeah. So why does it happen, though, seven days after exposure, though, Chris? It says here, look, uh, their performance was reduced seven days after exposure, although not during the exposure. In other words, leave mowing your lawn until it's your recovery day after you've done your race. (laughs) I can see possibly why that might happen, Ian, because when you're breathing the things in, they obviously need to get into the body, then they need to trigger the inflammatory effect by winding up the cells that soak Uh, them up, perhaps these macrophages, and then you get the release of the inflammatory factors, and then you get the knock-on effect on your nervous system and Mm. other things around the body. So I suspect that's part of it. How long does that take to clear from the body, your lungs and all that, Chris? The answer is, Ian, we just don't know, because no one's been doing studies on this. Thanks a lot, Chris. Ian, thank you. Thanks a lot, Sue. Bye. Thank you. Chris, June from Braytree has given us a call, and she asks if blue eyes are more sensitive to the sun than any other colour. I don't think that's necessarily true, but what I do know is that blue eyes tend to be associated with pale skin, pale hair, and of course that does make you more sensitive to the sun. So I have blue eyes and I have a fair complexion, of course. And this means that when you go outside in the sun, you don't have as much melanin. And melanin is a chemical that's made by melanocytes. These are a population of cells that live in the deep layer of your skin. And when you have exposure to the sun, the melanocytes switch on and they release more melanin, which is this chemical made... In fact, it's the same stuff that um, you use to make some of the nerve transmitters, including adrenaline in your body, but melanin is another derivative of that. And you make this melanin and insert it into the cells, and it acts like an ultraviolet shield. So the melanin soaks up ultraviolet rays and stops them getting into the skin and damaging it. And if you have more melanin, then you're more protected. If you have less melanin, you're less protected. So people who have pale skin, and that usually means also blue eyes, are more susceptible to the sun, at least initially, until they get a bit of a tan up. And so you have to be a bit more careful. People, of course, who are exposed to a lot of sun, i.e. people who live in parts of Asia, parts of Africa, have permanently dark skin to protect them because if they didn't have that then they'd all be dying of skin cancer right june i hope that answers your question gus has sent an email in he says has dr chris heard the scare story that mothers-to-be who eat too many nuts are putting their child at an increased risk of developing asthma Yes, um, it's interesting because when I was talking to the guys in Australia about this about two months ago, they were saying it's really interesting. About ten years ago, the government guidelines were, in Australia at least, do not feed nuts to your children because this could be linked to people getting nut allergies and asthma and all this kind of thing. Since that time, the number of nut allergies and asthma cases has gone through the roof. And now they're saying, actually, maybe this was the wrong advice to give. And to be honest, okay, I've fed both of my kids, and my wife is addicted to peanuts, Mm. lots of nuts from an early age. Obviously not when they're too young that they're going to choke on them. Mm. But we have not had any kind of worry in terms of if they want to eat nuts, they can. And here's my thinking. We go back about six million years as humans, and even longer than that as, as other kinds of primates. We've existed as a a species of of humanoids for six million years. Now, we've only had the National Health Service and government guidelines for about 50 years, so um, we haven't had anyone dictating what we should or shouldn't eat. And if you're in a cave and you've got a little kid, babies are programmed to put everything in their mouths, Mm. and that goes for nuts, dirt, rubbish, anything they can find, they put it in their mouths. And I think the point is that babies' immune systems are urgently asking to be educated when they're little. And that's why babies shove lots of things in their mouth. One, to get the sensation of tasting things, but two, to expose the immune system, which is very active around the mouth, to the things in the environment. Now, if a baby was to pick up a nut on the floor of its cave, it's not going to think, 
I'm under the age of two. I shouldn't eat that, and neither is its mother going to say that to it. So I don't think there's any reason why we should avoid these things because there's no evidence that actually they do translate into more or less in the way of allergy. It's a bit nonsensical, and I think it's paranoia and people desperately trying to do the right thing and and actually making things worse in the process. Something's going on. We've got allergies which are running at 100 times higher than they were when I was born, and I even have allergies. I have a bit of hay fever, not terrible, but I have Mm. allergies. And this year we've seen huge numbers of people complaining about allergy. Something is provoking us all to get allergic to everything, and I'd like to think it's probably that we need a good old dose of just normal common sense rather than trying to avoid things left, right and centre because when we're little, the immune system needs to learn what's friend and what's foe. And if you omit lots of things from the diet at that stage, it never gets the opportunity to, and then there's a chance that it might react the wrong way, and then you get an overreaction like anaphylaxis to things later. So it's much better to be exposed to them when you're little, I think, and I don't think there's any evidence, um, not robust evidence anyway, that avoiding things during pregnancy, such as peanuts, makes a difference to whether or not your baby gets gets allergic to things. Mm, same thing with um, cheese. That was a, one, at one time, wasn't it? Don't eat um, ah. Well, there's cheese, a, there is a case cheese. to be made. Yes, there are. There is a case to be made for certain foods in terms of their infection risk. Allergic risk is something different, but infection risk. There's a very real chance that things could go wrong there. So that's a serious point, And thank you for raising that because soft cheeses, which are made with unpasteurized cow's milk, for example, things like brie or camembert, so really nice cheeses in other words, there is a chance that they could contain listeria. Listeria is a small microorganism, it's bacterium, and it undergoes something called cold enrichment. So when you put the cheese in the fridge, most of the time when you put something in the fridge, it causes the bacterial growth to damp down because bacteria don't grow as fast in the cold. Listeria, though, grows very nicely in the cold, so in fact its levels can go up. And if you're pregnant, you can end up with listeria infecting you then it infects the placenta. It can also get into the baby from the genital tract, and the baby can then get a meningitis-like illness, or if the placenta is infected, you can have a stillbirth or an abortion, or the baby comes out before it should. So um, that's why there is an infection risk from certain foodstuffs. Cheese is one of them. Pate is another. Parma ham. Unfortunately, all the things that um, are absolutely delicious, you have to miss out when you're pregnant, and, and there is a reasonable case for doing that. Thank you very much, Dr Chris. Now then, Hedra from Linton wants to know what the static noise on her radio actually is, and why does it get worse as she moves closer to the radio, and it gets fine as she moves back? Oh, it's her electric personality, I reckon. No, what she's tuning into is something that scientists didn't realise the significance of until not so long ago, in fact. The static you're hearing on the radio, some of it anyway, is actually something called the cosmic background microwave radiation. In fact, it's the radio waves that are left over from the Big Bang when the universe started about 13.7 billion years ago. So when the universe was a point source that exploded and created the universe as we know it today, when it did that, it made a huge amount of energy come out. And that energy was initially in the very, very high-energy gamma ray and more powerful than that regime. And as the universe has expanded, those waves that were made have stretched and they've got longer and longer and longer and become radio waves. And those radio waves we can detect in the background nowadays are the background radiation that is left over from the Big Bang. So some of the static you hear on your radio, that white noise, is is just the, the remnants of where we all came from. But when you're not tuned into a station, the radio frequencies that we pick up on the radio these days can be a number of things. One of them can be vestiges of other transmissions, which are almost being picked up but not quite. 
Others are sources of electromagnetic radiation from around the home because most things do give out some degree of electrical interference. Electrical devices, if you have transformers or certain lights, other pieces of equipment, they'll all produce things which can be a variable radio wave frequencies and you can pick those up. So some of that interference is down to that. And you can demonstrate this yourself. If you've got a desk lamp or something and you put it near your radio and then you rock the switch gently back and forwards, you can get to a point where the lamp is just about to turn on or just about to turn off and and you may actually hear it sort of arcing slightly inside the switch and at the same time you'll hear your radio make a little sort of squirting noise like, zzz, zzz, like that and you can hear that noise which is the spark creating radio waves and emitting them into the radio aerial which your aerial then picks up and, and you hear so there's a number of reasons why we get this static in terms of why uh, when Hedra gets near the radio, it ought to make the signal get more or less intense. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I don't believe unless she's touching the antenna, she, she's effectively behaving as an aerial. Um, but I suppose it's possible that she may be blocking certain other signals which are coming in and, and allowing other more dominant noises to come through. And that's why the interference is changing. That would be my best guess, I think. <laughs> Right, well, we've got uh, Peter from Chelmsford asks if humans are only the only species to get hay fever. Uh, no, I don't believe they are. Uh, I know this firsthand because I had a poor dog who, unfortunately, now is dead, but uh, he died a few years ago. But he was a terrific dog, except during summertime he used to get awful allergies, and I think his eyes used to get a bit itchy, and also his skin used to get pruritic, so itchy skin. And we used to treat him with the same remedies that you use to treat humans. So you get some steroids, prednisolone, and also pyroton, the antihistamine. And before we got the pyroton for him, he was taking uh, another drug, which is called Atarax, uh, hydroxyzine, which is a very, very good antihistamine for stopping itchy skin. And I remember when I was staying around my mum's, where this dog lived a few years back, and I had a touch of hay fever, and I thought, hmm, I need some antihistamines. So I, I, look, I saw what the drug with the dog was on, hydroxyzine, and I thought, ah, um, I wonder if that's the same stuff that we can use. So I looked it up in my, in my drug book for doctors, and it said hydroxyzine was good for humans as well. So I took some of the dog tablets, um, and, and it, it did stop me itching, but it also sent me to sleep. And I slept all afternoon, and then I found out why, because in higher doses, this uh, particular antihistamine is extremely sedating, and, and the dog dose was quite a bit higher than the human dose. So that was my little experiment in pharmacology, but it <laughs> proved to me that, yes, dogs do definitely get allergies the same way that humans do, and they definitely respond to the same drugs as well. So if dogs can get allergies, I don't believe that any old animal couldn't. So I'm pretty sure that there are other animals that get allergic to things too. Mm. And Simon in Norwich says, why is it some nights I have two pints and feel quite squiffy, and then another night I have five or six and feel fine? Well, I mean, um, it could be that he has two pints of uh, gin, which would make anyone feel squiffy. Uh, I'm presuming, though, he means beer. And maybe it depends on where you drink, because I've been to a number of clubs and pubs where they definitely water down the beer. So it's worth checking. In some nightclubs, it's a pretty standard practice that you inject water into your beer. And as a result, that everyone thinks that they can suddenly sink 10 pints and still be standing. And in fact, it's because the beer's been watered down. 
Um, but there are other reasons why sometimes you're more prone to getting drunk. And it depends what you've eaten, actually. Because when you drink alcohol, the first port of call is your stomach. And alcohol is one of a small number of chemicals that can actually be absorbed directly through the wall of the stomach. But most of the absorption takes place in the small intestine. We have a very big surface area for the intestine to put things out of the intestine into the bloodstream. That includes alcohol. But what controls the flow of things in the stomach into the intestine is what you've eaten already because the stomach has a valve called the pyloric sphincter and this lets through small amounts of food or liquid at once. So if you've already eaten a big meal and then you put a lot of beer on top of it you don't actually get as drunk as quick because the stomach is controlling how much things leave the stomach to go into the small intestine and this means that less goes in at once it gets into the bloodstream and the first port of call for blood from the gut is the liver and you break down a lot of alcohol on the way through from the gut into the main bloodstream that's called first pass metabolism so if there's only small amounts of alcohol being absorbed at any time and then going through the liver the liver has an opportunity to deal with most of it before it hits the bloodstream which is why you don't get so drunk if you don't eat and you sink a whole lot of alcohol on an empty stomach because there's not a lot of substance to the booze in your stomach it just ends up straight in your small intestine lots of it gets absorbed all at once lots of it goes through the liver all at once this saturates or overwhelms the liver's ability to metabolize the alcohol so lots more all at once ends up in your systemic circulation this makes you very very drunk very very quickly which is why you feel worse so it's all down to drinking pace and what you've had to lie in your stomach first and those that the old wives tells that lining your stomach makes a difference really is true um, there's one here from Martin who says, um, can paralysed people suffer from a hernia? Oh, definitely. Um, when, when he says a hernia, I'm presuming he means an inguinal or groin hernia, but there are lots of different hernias. A hernia just means the movement of a viscous, so in other words, one of your internal bits through another structure, usually the abdominal wall. But most people, when, when you talk about hernias, they're thinking about a bulge in your groin, but you can also get them around your belly button, for example, and down the midline, the line between the two main muscles uh, in your abdomen, although it tends to be slightly different there. Now, when you have a groin hernia, what's happening there is that in men it's much more common than women because in men the testes are outside the body and they have to connect up with all the pipe work inside the body and the route that the uh, testes take to do that they have a tube coming off the back that's the vas deferens or the spermatic cord and this goes up out of the scrotum and it goes to approximately uh, the root of your scrotum where it then goes into the abdominal wall it goes along something called your inguinal canal which is a folded over sort of cavity created by the muscles folding over there and it then goes outwards and upwards and then dives inside you. And because you've therefore got a weakness in the abdominal wall there, so this spermatic cord can run through, this means that if you are at risk of a hernia because you're doing things like coughing a lot, you are lifting heavy things, or it just happens in some people spontaneously, then what can happen is that the hole that the cord goes through can enlarge a bit and then bits from inside the tummy can bulge into that canal. And that's what a hernia is, and it tends to get worse and worse. But pretty much anyone can get them, but they are worse in people who lift things that are often very heavy and people with chronic coughs, because if you're coughing all the time, when you cough, you push down on the abdominal contents and you raise your intra-abdominal pressure, and this strains all of the nooks and crannies, and it's more likely to push things where they shouldn't go. Thankfully, they can be very easily treated, and there's a really good, safe way to repair hernias, the Lichtenstein procedure, and what they do is to uh, just open up at the 
um, place where the hernia has occurred and just put some mesh, which is just like a plastic mesh, inside. And it holds everything in. And it's very, very low in pain, very few side effects, and the effect uh, is instantly to hold everything in. And you just have to take it easy for a little while afterwards and you're cured effectively. So it can be put right if you've got it. It's not, not a major problem these days. All right. Well, that sounds painful anyway, but uh, thank you very much. Do, do women get hernias as well, Chris? Well, they can do. Um, but because women don't have testicles, not normally anyway, no, I uh, then as a result, they, although they have the same structure, the inguinal canal, they don't actually have the cord running through it like a man would, and therefore women don't have that point of weakness in their abdominal wall in the same way that men do, and so women are less prone to inguinal or groin hernias like men are, but women can get hernias elsewhere for simple reasons that they have babies, and this puts up the pressure in your abdomen and strains everything quite a lot, so things can bulge through, for instance, around the umbilical the belly button. You can get a para-umbilical hernia, which is a little bulge around the side of your belly button. You can also get what's called rectal diverification. These are the two main muscles, your six-pack that runs down the middle of your tummy. Uh, there's a piece of cartilage or, or sort of uh, fibrous tissue that holds the two together, and that can become stretched with age and bulge, allowing them to go sideways, and the abdominal contents can herniate out in front, particularly when you're trying to pull yourself up from a lying position, for example. Thankfully, these things are all pretty easy to, to repair. And the other thing is that usually if the defect is nice and big there's no chance of the contents whatever's being herniated out getting stuck because the real danger with a hernia is if the hernial sac the thing that's coming out where it shouldn't gets stuck or twists on itself because then it can get devitalized in other words you can cut off the blood supply and this can cause all kinds of problems because you can infarct or kill the tissue that's stuck in there but if you've got a nice big defect where things pop in and out easily much lower risk and so it's it's not not too much of a problem it's more unsightly and uncomfortable than anything but thankfully as i say very easy to repair mm. all right well we've got dave from luton on the line now hello dave hello you're through to dr chris your Thanks. question um yeah, has it ever been measured how much UV light is available at, at night? Hi Dave, I don't think that anyone has measured the amount of UV light available at night, but it will be definitely a lot less than in the daytime, unless of course you live in a sunbed or uh, in some kind of uh, nightclub where there will be ultraviolet. Um, but no, it, it should be a lot lower than during the daytime. You know, what made me wonder is, um, I've noticed it with bluebells, very much so with daisies, and other uh, certain other flowers um when you get dusk and it's getting getting dark yeah they seem to fluoresce and i'm wondering if this is how the um insects finds the flowers the night flying insects and also why moths head for light bulbs because light bulbs they might be mistaking them for huge flowers they're two different questions but they're both very important the flower question first yes flowers do have special structures that can soak up ultraviolet and then fluoresce or produce other frequencies of light some of which we can't see but a lot of insects and especially bees are very sensitive to ultraviolet so by plants absorbing and then re-radiating in the ultraviolet they make all kinds of interesting patterns on the flower surface that bees can see at night time bit different scientists have recently discovered and described some flowers which have the ability to behave like a glow-in-the-dark sticker you've seen those stickers that you shine a torch on or you flash under the light and then when you turn all the lights off they glow yeah uh there are certain flowers that have the ability to do that so they have various chemicals in them that can almost soak up or store energy and then they fluoresce or release that uh, light later on. So this means when it gets dark, they can, they can show up and make their flower glow almost at a wavelength that certain insects and certain pollinators are sensitive to. And there are certain moths, for instance, that are attracted to plants like this. 
And so that might be part of the thing that you're, you're seeing. And the other point is that um, when you get to the end of the day, the amount of ambient light will change, and there might be pigments in some flowers which are very good at making use of the light that is still around at dusk and making it appear brighter because they, they soak up certain wavelengths of light and then re-radiate them at visible wavelengths, for example. I don't know exactly what the wavelengths are, but, but that would be my guess. Yeah. I said it, it just seemed interesting to me that um, they seemed to glow at the evening, and I was wondering whether through refraction that um, UV was actually distributed through the atmosphere virtually 24 hours a day. No, I don't think it is because the UV is going to be proportional to how much light is arriving from the sun because UV is just part of the mixture, the cocktail of light that comes to Earth from the sun. And this means that the the, uh, proportion of UV is going to be the same no matter whether it's day or night. Uh, When when you've got sun, rather, you will have an X proportion of UV And when it's dark, you'll have much less light and therefore much less UV. Yeah, but what I was getting at was I was wondering whether any any of the frequencies could actually be refracted around through the atmosphere. Well, UV's got very short wavelengths, and short wavelengths are much less good at being refracted or bent around things than long wavelengths are, Uh. which is why, for instance, low frequencies, uh, boomy speakers, uh, send their sound waves out of someone's car and down the street and into your bedroom. And that's why you hear the bass, but Mm. you don't hear the higher notes. And it's the same with light, because the high frequencies, like ultraviolet, very high frequency, is much less good at doing that than the long wavelength, uh, things like infrared or red light. Ah, okay then. Thanks very much. Is that all right? I can't answer your question about moths and light bulbs, I'm afraid. The simple reason that no one knows the answer. Yeah, you you, you get people mentioning things about the moon... Yeah, if that was the case, then there'd be um, aircraft with moths splattered all over them. Absolutely right, <laughs> and they've done experiments to test this, and there's no evidence that the insects do think that the bulb is to the moon. It was just a popular theory that perhaps they yeah. were navigating that way. I think there's just something attractive about the light. They perhaps like the warmth, perhaps there's other frequencies that they can see, they're sensitive to, and this is what draws them in. We just don't know. All right, Dave. Okay, thank you very much. Cheers, then. You take care. Bye-bye. Paul is on the line. Hello, Paul. Hello, Sue. Hello there. You're through to Dr Chris. Right, Chris. Hey, Paul. Uh, hello, how are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm all right, mate, yeah. C- can we ponder on another technical one? Um, fluorescence, I understand. I understand the principles of absorbing high-frequency light, say ultraviolet, invisible, and re-emitting at lower visible frequencies. Yeah. When we get to light sticks, which I know is called chemoluminescence, you've combined two or more chemicals, what, yeah. what provokes the emission of light, please? Okay. Well, for people that don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about sticks which you can buy and then you snap them or bend them or break them in half and you hear a sort of cracking noise, shake it up and suddenly it begins to give out this amazing bright light. They often can be pink or green. You often see them at things like uh, sort of bonfire night parties. That's right. And the light that they produce is, is cold. They don't seem to get hot. And this is a cold light source. And as you quite rightly say, Paul, this is chemoluminescence. There's a chemical reaction which is driving the production of light. Now, if you could zoom in on the inside of one of those glow sticks what you'd find is a mixture of chemicals and in fact there are two tubes in there there's the outer tube and there's an inner tube and the inner tube is made of something fragile it's usually very thin glass or some plastic which can easily be broken and that's what snaps when you break the glow stick in half or when you bend it inside that fragile tube is some hydrogen peroxide the same stuff that you use to neutralize sorry that to to sterilize your contact lenses or to bleach your hair right. and when that comes out of the glass tube it mixes with another chemical which is 
outside that glass tube, and, and this is an ester molecule. It's called diphenyloxalate ester, and the hydrogen peroxide reacts with that, splitting apart the ester, and right. in the process it releases energy. And the reactive products of that reaction are fed into a fluorescent dye, which is also present. And the fluorescent dye molecule soaks up some of the energy being given off by the reaction between the hydrogen peroxide and the ester. And that causes the dye to get excited. And to talk about excitement, what we're talking about there is that the dye molecules have electrons going around them. And they and go to a higher the... level and drop to a lower one. Got that bit. But what, exactly what, right. what, what, what chemical thing causes the UV in the first place to provoke the fluorescence? What, what, what's hydrogen peroxide and the ester actually doing? Right. Well, uh, uh, what it's actually doing is splitting the ester molecule apart. Mm. And the hydrogen peroxide, when it's doing this, it's a free radical reaction. Right. And it's actually the production of free radicals, which is responsible for exciting the phosphor, the fluorescent radicals dye. Radicals carry a, a negative charge, is that right? They carry a charge in one direction. Well, free to radicals are objects that have an unpaired electron, mm-hmm. so they're very reactive because they want the to negative, usually get yeah. another electron to make their electron have a partner. Okay. And for that reason, they're very reactive. Okay, good. So the colour isn't down to purely dye, it's down to the fact that the, fl- the chemical's chosen to fluoresce at certain frequencies. Absolutely right. When okay. they first made these things, they tended to be green or yellow, mm-hmm. because green is a colour which your eye is most sensitive to in the dark. We are, we are, we're very yeah. sensitive to green in the dark. Our retina is very good at receiving green light, because the wavelength of green light packs quite an energetic punch on your retina. More recently, we've come up with better chemicals, which also can soak up the energy produced by this chemical reaction and then re-release it at different wavelengths, and then that's how you get things like blues, you get things like reds, and you can also get yellows. But the Pioneer was really green because that was the one which produced... You you effectively didn't have to have a very good chemical reaction to get what appeared to be quite a lot of light. Oh, yeah, okay, so it's perception. We we see green as brighter than a similar amount of energy in a different colour spectrum. So, okay, yeah. Absolutely right. Okay, good. Thank you. Paul, thank you very much. You're easy, please. Thank you very much. (laughs) Chris, as always, thank you so much for joining me tonight. And uh, will we have you again next week? Will we have Dave next week? I think you'll have the pleasure of Dave's company next week. But uh, if you haven't got Dave, you've always got me. So give me a shout. How lovely. Dr Chris, thank you so much. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 